0: Hello everyone. It's August 18th, 2020. We have a massive show this week and why not? Since we didn't have one at all last week. So we have an update on the Lucy spacecraft. We got some small payload news and we have Katie Pilachowski who's going to tell us everything about telescopes. Big show. Let's go and lift off. <music> In we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 272 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right. We're all three back, finally. Well, <laughs> I think it's yeah. been about a month. Yeah, it's what? Yeah, three weeks,
1: maybe. Yeah, I, I, yeah, know, I, I guess three weeks.
0: Three or four, um, but we're all finally back in place. You're moved. Yeah. Um, you still have some stuff that you're waiting on, but that should be here like any minute now? Uh, uh,
1: not any, Not any minute. Ho- hopefully within the next 24 hours, we'll see.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. You got a U-Haul coming, um, which it'll be interesting if you just get a knock on the door in the middle of recording, then we'll just no. have to.
1: No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Um, cause what, what'll happen is I'll get a phone call in the middle of the recording. And for that, I am going to, I am going to leave this recording and go, and go take the call. Copy that. Then I have to call my, my moving company and reschedule, actually get it. Cause I, I did, uh, U-Haul U-Boxes, which, it is a great idea. They, they deliver these big, um, storage. Con- well, in terms of storage containers, they're small or sh- shipping crates. They're small the, you can fit like four of them in a standard, uh, shipping container. And so they deliver them to your house and you, uh, you can take up to a week to fill them up and then they come pick them up and then they ship them. And then they can either deliver them to your house or you can, um, do what I did and pay movers to help unload them. But yeah, they give you a guaranteed delivery date and apparently it doesn't matter. That's cool. I used I used
2: those once, different company, but it was
1: it was, was pretty it, good. Was
2: it like pods? It was oh, yeah.
0: I've seen
1: those. Yeah, it was the green ABF or something like that. Do you remember what their transit time was? Was it more reasonable than two weeks? Yeah, it was ABF freight system. I don't remember I do
2: remember it was roughly weeks, but it was also a little tricky too, because I was going to Canada, so mm. I they had to they had to first take it to like basically this uh, entry checkpoint yeah. like near the airport yeah. and then I had to just go there sign off some customs things and then they shipped it to my final like to my place that me. makes sense but um, yeah I think it was at least at least a week and a half before it got to there
1: well so the the problem for me was I didn't know when when I was scheduling all this I didn't know what my job situation was gonna look like and so uh, I went with literally the cheapest option I could possibly find and if I would have known that I was going to still have a job, <laughs> I would have gone with a more expensive, faster option. But you know, for, for low cost moving, I mean, it's still, it's still really freaking expensive. It's like $3,000, mm. but like compared to the alternatives, which can be way more expensive. It, it's really fantastic. Just in this case, uh, U-Haul dropped the ball on the origin side and the destination side. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we're,
0: we're pretty mad. Well, I guess we'll hear the conclusion next week. We'll find out mm-hmm, in hopefully. the ongoing saga of all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lucy is on track for 2021. So, I love, I love Lucy. I
1: mean, like, yeah, I just now realized that that's that that's con- could be construed as a reference, but for real. Lucy is such a cool, such a cool mission.
0: So can you uh, do some splaining for us? Because what is Lucy? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just for anyone who doesn't know.
1: (laughs) I think I've done this more than once. I tend to think that Lucy is um, an acronym. It's not. Lucy is named after Lucy the Homo habilis, or I'm sorry, the uh, Australopithecus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's named after this famous skeleton. Um, and the reason for that is um, it's going to go study the Trojans and its hope uh, the Trojan asteroids. and the hope is that it will reveal the fossils of planetary formation, mm-hmm. which I mean, how cool is that? and I, I like it. And
2: there's also a nice touch that the first asteroid on its outbound trip before it gets to the Trojans, um, I have to assume that this was done kind of uh, after the mission
1: knew it was going to go after, Mm -hmm. but
2: maybe not. I don't know. But it's it's named Mm -hmm. after Donald Johnson, who who was the person who discovered Lucy, the paleontologist.
1: Yeah, it it works out pretty well. So um, Lucy is this wonderful mission that is um, going to study the, the Trojan asteroids, which are in a resonant uh, they're they're orbitally locked to Jupiter, so um, they are in. I can't remember if it's the L four L five because one is the Trojans, one is the Greeks. Mm. But the they're Trojans. Both, sorry, I, I think they both count as Trojans, but one of them's called Greeks too. Oh, I see. It's
2: a awkward convention, but yeah, at that that classification a Trojan asteroid is an asteroid at either of Jupiter's leading or trailing Lagrange points.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So like like. Like Dennis said, they're leading and trailing. So they are, um, 120 degrees away from each other and 60 degrees away from Jupiter. Um, and, you know, it's just this, we've talked about Lagrangian points enough that I don't think I have to explain it, but they're kind of these clouds of asteroids that, that trail in and lead Jupiter. And, you know, it's really nice of Jupiter to keep them way out there and away, <laughs> away from us. And so what Lucy is going to do is it's going to dip back and forth Um, okay. The Greeks are at L4 and the Trojans are at L5. Um, and they're, I think they're called camps. I don't remember, but basically it's going to swing back and forth between, uh, L4 and L5. Donald Johnson, uh, 52246. Donald Johnson is in the, uh, it's Donald Johansson. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Johansson, good. I just Great. saw
2: Johnson, like, my brain left out the yeah. A.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, 52246 Donald Johansson is the first stop that we mentioned. That's, that's actually in the inner, uh, asteroid belt, the, the main belt. That's going to be sort of a, an, an extra bonus that's not in the Trojan asteroids. And then what this is so cool. What Lucy is going to do is it's actually going to ping back and forth, um, between, the inner solar system and then the Trojans. And so it'll, it'll, uh, visit back and forth in this really beautiful, almost like a, um, like a, three link chain, almost like a figure eight with an extra lobe. If you view it in relation to Jupiter, but it will um, first visit the Greeks and then the Trojans and then the Greeks. And so they have four targets um, picked out in the first swing out to the Greeks. Um, that's going to be happening at the end of 2027 to the beginning of 2028. Oh, actually, no, it's, it's actually a longer the hover time is actually pretty long. So the first target is going to be uh, 3548 Euripides, and that's going to be in August of 2027. And then it's going to hit two more targets before it hits its last target, 21900 Orus, in November 2028. Um, so it's going to have like a, a year that it's going to kind of loiter up at the top of its orbit, and it's going to fall back down towards the inner solar system uh, Zip past the sun i think it stays around earth's altitude uh zip around the sun and then hit the trojans in 2033 and we only have one target picked out but it's it's a binary asteroid uh a binary asteroid pair and it's going to hang out in the trojans for a year and then come back down it's so cool but yeah it's it's going to be ping-ponging back and forth between these two groups um its own orbit in artificial resonance uh with uh with Jupiter. So what's
0: the transit time?
1: Uh to, to get up to its first periapsis. Um, so it's going it, to, hopefully, that this news item is that it's on track to launch in 2021. So uh, it'll launch in 2021 and then it won't get th- to its first target in the Trojans until 2027.
0: And then from there, because you said it'll you know, like spend some time in like with like the Greeks and then it'll move to the Trojans and so forth and then it'll go back and forth. So what's the transit time between those orbits?
1: So it'll leave the Greeks in 2028 and it'll arrive at the Trojans in 2030.
0: So this is a spacecraft with, I assume, a pretty good lifespan here because it's going to take five years right. to get between them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, think about um, think about the Voyager spacecraft. You know, part part of hmm. their mission was to study the the heliopause, way, way, way out there, and you know, we we did that. So
2: yeah. So the reason Lucy's in the news is that it had just um, finished its systems integration review. So uh, you know, last October was uh, another. So Lucy, right, was selected back in 2017 uh, along with Psyche to be one of our latest discovery program missions. So these are supposed to be a kind of low cost cap. So I think it's a little less than half a billion dollars, which, for doing what Ben just described, is pretty remarkable. <laughs> I mean, as far as as far as celestial objects visited per dollar, I mean that's got to be you know remarkably good, mm-hmm. especially if these are you know outer solar system objects as well Mm -hmm. you know and so um the discovery program so that that that's sharing um or that you know program has included a lot of like very well-known very famous uh spacecraft like pathfinder stardust messenger kepler and insight which is the only one that's still operating now and uh so in 2017 it was selected uh, uh after you know narrowing it down with uh you know, some other missions. And then um, last October, it passed another big phase uh, or another big review, the critical design review, which permitted the onset of uh, work on uh, designing the bus and systems uh, for the spacecraft. And then um, after that, the, uh, yeah, so recently the systems integration review has been completed. So now uh, they're greenlighted to do the physical phase, the assembly test and launch operations or ATLO or ATLO, I forget if you say it out loud. I feel like it's just screaming to be said out loud. Yeah, Um, right. Jake Robbins just did an awesome uh, interview, uh, and by, you know, just did in the last month or two, uh, about uh, uh, Mars 2020. So I guess that must have been at least a month ago. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, so that was, uh, uh, so I I can't remember whether or not you say it or just spell it out. But in any event. Well,
1: Jake said Atlo, so I I say say Atlo.
2: Okay. cool. It'd be a shame not to since it. Kind of rolls on the right. tongue like that, yeah. mm-hmm. and so this was, you know, this this uh, systems integration review was a four day, um, you know, review of the different mission segments, components, and subsystems, checking that they're all on schedule, that uh, the mission planners have a good uh, idea of what they need to do, and um, this, of course, was done remotely because you know we're in our COVID environment now, and so a lot of NASA reviews i found are taking place uh, remotely. You know, there was a bit of a schedule setback on, you know, some of the instruments uh, because of COVID. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, they passed their view. They were able to find a way to adjust the schedule to make it a little more flexible. And so they were able to kind of uh, convince uh, the people that they needed to convince that they will be able to get their uh, spacecraft uh, assembled and on track for a 2021 launch. And so um, Ben did an awesome job describing the trajectory and kind of science case for the mission and so what does the spacecraft itself look like it's a uh relatively small spacecraft with gigantic solar panels (laughs) so it's about 40 feet across um kind of in a fan uh shaped pattern there's two fans of solar panels on the sides circular yeah yeah Yeah. looking like a cygnus kind of style Mm. uh but just obviously scaled up since it's going out to you know five au-ish and um the instruments, it has just three, uh, I say just three, but you know, they're really mm-hmm. good instruments, but it has, uh, ones that all have New Horizons and Osiris Rex heritage. And so there's two imagers and a, uh, uh, spectrometer. Uh, although I guess one of the imagers also has a spectroscopic component built in. And so assuming it's anything like New Horizons, uh, the real, uh, meat and potatoes imager is going to be instead of New Horizons is Ralph instrument. This one's called La Ralph l apostrophe ralph so i guess lucy ralph but uh le ralph is a panchromatic or visible color imager so it can either take images of the entire full visible spectrum or cut it isn't, down into different if, bands. If,
1: right so isn't that isn't le ralph french for the ralph <laughs> I, I guess yeah. Say that.
2: <laughs> yeah but like why would i mean this isn't a french this is southwestern research institute why would they make it all french
1: <laughs> i don't know yeah no well especially <laughs> because cause, well, the next one is just I mean, hard to say like
2: yeah, yeah. So, so you're right it is i mean I think that's kind of the the joke is how do you integrate the l into these other names so so to jump ahead oh, right i see
1: yeah the three right, instruments right.
2: yeah. ralph laurie and Otes, have been renamed la Le ralph Le laurie and la tess which right is certainly like you know that's the french way of saying the ralph the laurie and the tess but i think why they went down that road given that there's not yeah. as far as i can understand no a, a french component to this mission is yeah, that and, they you, were... and
1: you do need to include the lucy don't you yeah right, right.
2: <laughs> and so i mean i love it first of all and um I guess uh, since, uh, you know, I Love Lucy made it to the show earlier, uh, La Ralph, um, and Ralph is named after uh, the Honeymooners character, right? Because there was Ralph and Alice, and so Alice is a spectrometer on New Horizons. But there's no La Alice here. So, anyway, uh, yeah, so this was, you know, you look at some of the uh, awesome New Horizons images, and you're going to get, you know, and as well as uh, Arakoth. So images of Pluto and Arakoth. You can get a comparable, uh, you know, expect to see, you know, comparable images with, uh, you know, Lucy when it's going out and checking out these different uh, Trojans and Greek asteroids. And then um, the uh, next uh, of the two, the second of the three key instruments is Lalori, which is the high resolution imager. And so this one is just uh, purely panchromatic. If it's anything like LORI, then it doesn't have any moving parts or anything, and the whole spacecraft will have to slew uh, to aim the telescope at where it wants. But this is the, the narrow field of view, but like really high resolution imaging um, instrument. And so that's going to be, you know, I guess the most exciting images, maybe, or at least the most mm. you know high resolution ones.
1: The antenna is also fixed; it doesn't it doesn't pivot. So it's going to be one of those missions where we take a bunch of photos and then radio them home. And you gotta wait for them,
2: right, right, right. Yeah, and that is, is in a sense, kind of the fourth instrument too, because you you can always kind of do you know science using the radio mm-hmm. instruments on board, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, but as far as the third kind of payload instrument is the uh, is a the thermal infrared spectrometer, LATES, which is uh, you know designed uh, or takes its heritage from uh, uh, the infrared spectrometer on board Osiris Rex, named OTES, right now. And so which As an aside, uh, just had a successful match point, sorry, what's it called? Match point, burn, sample, rehearsal, whatever, you know, I I forget exactly what it's called. But essentially, um, it got super close to the asteroid Bennu and really, really cool uh, images of that, a little gif out there in the internet if you want to check that out um huh. did you guys manage to see it like it pulled out the sampling arm and everything and got very close to the surface closer than it ever no, had before. no i didn't
0: see that no yeah I oh not.
2: yeah no it's, what's a good search term oh uh, cyrus rex match point rehearsal i'd say so those are the uh those are the instruments uh on board and uh now that you know it's ready for the atlo uh the prime contractor for building the spacecraft is lockheed uh lockheed martin space systems and so um they say that the uh, assembly should start taking place shortly, so maybe in a month or so from now.
0: Great, Godspeed, Lucy. Let's uh, let's translate on over to I guess what you might call a new small sub segment called small payload corner. Yeah, I just
1: I got mm-hmm. I got three small payload stories, and I decided to lump them all together instead of yeah. doing you know six shorts and sweets or yeah. <laughs> you know seven or I guess a, a four separate news items. I just lumped them together. So, that makes sense. Um, I can, I can run through these guys pretty quick. Feel free to stop me if you have questions or comments. All right. So the first one is Rocket Labs increased performance. This is pretty cool. So they, they have two upgrades that they've done recently. Um, the newest one is they actually up, uh, upgraded their payload capacity. So, um, they used to quote 150 kilograms to sun synchronous orbit. Uh, or 225 to quote-unquote lower orbit. So let's just call it LEO, right? 150 and 225 kilograms. They upgraded those numbers to 200 and 300 kilograms, which, that, I mean, that's a pretty significant increase. That's, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's like a 20% increase. So that's that's pretty cool. They're attributing uh, this uh, performance increase to their batteries. As battery technology has improved, they've been able to put better and better batteries on, or... Maybe just better. I don't know how many times they've actually um, swapped out their battery specs, but they've got uh, better batteries on board and so they can push harder. The other uh, update, which is a week or two old, but I don't think you guys talked about it while I was gone, is mm-hmm. they actually increased their fairing size and this is pretty cool. So now they have. Uh, their standard fairing, which is like their rapid uh, integration fairing, and they have their expanded fairing, and they're calling it a non-standard service. And if you're going to use their expanded fairing, you're going to need Um, an integration schedule that's 12 months or longer. So they're going to need time to actually fabricate this per mission. They're not going to keep them in stock. It sounds like, Hmm. um, but the increase is fairly significant as well. So the diameter is expanding from one meter to 1.6 meters and the height and that, that diameter is at the, the base of the fairing, obviously, because it tapers up into the nose cone, um, and then the, the height is increasing from 1.9 meters to 2.9 meters. And if you see this guy, uh, it is, it is no small difference. Instead of the base of the fairing being flush with the sides of the second stage, it actually now has a shoulder that pokes out to accommodate that wider diameter. And then the, the height is, is visually noticeable as well.
0: So I assume that this is an upgrade that they're making, um, like as a result of the increased performance, because, um, I was just wondering if you have more efficient batteries in this case, do you, keep the same volume but you just have you know like more efficiency and therefore mm-hmm. you can go higher okay because you could also i suppose you know just put however many fewer batteries you would then need and then you could but then that would be a much larger vehicle redesign and obviously you don't want to do that so
1: yeah no 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 no, no. They, they, it's it's the same vehicle for each mission they're not customized the, this isn't uh ula this is really fast Let's just get it up there as cheap as possible. But yeah, you know the the increased um, mass limit is is helpful for even customers using the standard fairing because I mean if you if you look at some of the payloads, they compared to the volume of the fairing, you really don't fill up that fairing, right? The payloads mm-hmm. are, are fairly small. And then Colin in the chat has a, a really good observation. Better for better performance means more margin for recovery. Mm. Um, and so who knows? Maybe this. This increase from 225 kilograms to 300 kilograms is not the full increase. Maybe they reserved a little bit extra to widen their recovery margins. I'm I'm not sure. Um, I think they're probably going to fly, you know, a decent number of expendable missions, um, as time goes on, but we'll see. But yeah. Um, the other thing to notice about the, the expanded fairing is that the upper stages at, well, they have one upper stage that's planned to be used with the new fairing and the upper stage is white instead of black. I don't know if that's going to be a standard thing that they do, but you know, maybe it'll be that much easier to spot even, a even an electron that's planned to use an expanded fairing. Okay. So that's rocket lab. Let's move on to NASA. So NASA is now going to be coordinating small sat ride shares. I think we might have mentioned this uh, earlier now that I think about it, but it's hard to tell if my familiarity is just from uh, reading the Space News article or not. But in any event, um, Space News uh, wrote a really great article um talking about this and and this is actually a little bit of old news. Um, the science mission directorate established this new rideshare office earlier this year, and uh, they've actually been up and running long enough that they do have, uh, rideshares planned, um, all, for, you know, from now running up to the end of the year, but I don't know if those came out of this specific office or just the science mission directorate, uh, in general. But anyway, the, the, this office is going to be, uh, worked hard. It sounds like they, they're going to fly, um, payload adapters for small satellites on every single mission that they have mass underages. I was going to say overages, but when they have extra extra mass on a rocket they're gonna try to get a payload adapter on every single one um thomas uh has a great quote in the space news article he says we're not gonna ask whether we need it you have to convince us that we don't Mm -hmm. that's pretty cool so um if smd has a mission but they don't have a payload to actually fly in that in that capability in that capability overage they're going to offer that space out to other nasa directorates and then they're going to go to even other government agencies they're going to try to pack every single rocket they fly to the gills and i think that's really fantastic all right so let's move on to the third news item in our small payload corner this week heat management is becoming a a new bottleneck in the small sat era um, and this is another Space News article, and this is a really great article. It's sort of a state-of-the-industry kind of reporting style um, where they got interviews from a bunch of different companies, and they have a couple of different quotes uh, from from every company. And it, it's just, you know, this isn't breaking news. Like, we know that heat management is, is difficult, um, but it's a really cool way to highlight the fact that heat management, when you have very little real estate, um, because become becomes something that you have to fight against. So they kind of broke this into two categories. Um, they have a couple of interviews discussing the challenges, and then they have a couple of interviews discussing the solutions. So on the challenge side, they talked to uh, Planet's VP of Development and Manufacturing. Then they talked to AAC Clyde Space's Chief Strategy Officer, and they talked to L3 Harris's Executive Officer of Space and Airborne Systems. And basically, they all said, yeah, this is a big problem. Yes, we're looking for solutions. And yes, we see, uh, this being a bottleneck. I believe it was L3 Harris actually was quoted as saying that some of their satellites need to shed hundreds of watts of thermal energy. Um, and imagine having hundreds of watts you got to get rid of in a CubeSat. Like, it, mm. it's a problem. So then they talked to three different companies who are developing solutions. Um, one of them is really, really cool. Uh, the company is called Carbice, and actually I want to reach out to them and see if we can get an interview. Um, they are developing this nanotech carbon fiber material um, called Carbice Carbon, and it's basically a super thin sheet um, that is installed on, on a sticker. It's a, an adhesive backing. And, um, you can not only stick it onto components, but you can actually peel it off and reposition it if, if you have an issue. Um, hmm. so this is just like a, a super robust material that they're saying, you know, has a potential. If you're manufacturing satellites, kind of like, you know, planet is, um, you can really, um, begin to bring your manufacturing costs down in, in terms of thermal management because you can just stick a sticker on. And so what, uh, what carbon does, they have, carbice carbon in a couple of different versions and their most recent one is called carbon magic which which i like Um, (laughs) so you can take this carbon material um, and stick it onto your electronics Um, and it uh, is basically a heat pipe it can wick away heat from the components that are generating the most heat and because it's a flexible adhesive sticker essentially um, if you've got uh electronic components soldered onto to soldered onto a board, you can literally lay this um to fill those gaps and just stick it onto the top and sides of these components and it can um conform to your contours. I mean obviously it, it's not um elastic so you're gonna have to do some planning, but you know you can you can use one piece, one one component and stick it to multiple heat generating components. Um and I, I think that's that's pretty cool. I mean, it, it literally is like a black sticker. Then, uh, the second company that they talk to is Criere. Criere? Criere? I, I would hesitate to, hesitate to call it Criere because that's a, a word in Spanish and it's got an E on the end. So I'm thinking Criere. So Criere has this, um, cryo cooler, basically a, a heat pump. But what's really cool, they showed this off at the SmallSat conference this year. So they've developed a super small solid state and therefore vibration free cryo cooler. Um, so you can actually, since, since it's got the word cryo in it, my assumption is that they can get down to cryo temperatures or at least close enough. Um, and you can do this all in solid state. So you don't have to worry about your observations getting all jittery. Now, granted, once you've pumped this heat, you have to dump it out somewhere. And, um, you know we we've seen helium and other cryo liquids cryogases being used um to be able to wick away heat right you dump the heat into that phase change and then just expel the gas. And that, that's a familiar thing to do. And so here you're going to be pumping the heat with a cryo cooler and then you have to be able to expend it somewhere. You, you don't naturally just get gas you get to dump out. But if you're, if you're doing something that requires high pointing accuracy, um, or you have delicate components that you don't want to have to (laughs) subjugate to vibration, uh, this is a cool component that can fit in a small set. Finally, they talked to Pumpkin, and I I just love Pumpkin. It's such a such a great company name. Um, but they talked to Pumpkin, who, uh, if you don't remember, they manufacture the entire small set. So Carbice and Creere are doing small set components, but Pumpkin uh does does it all. And so they um just got a Saber contract um to develop a number of different uh heat management systems. And I believe I saw Pumpkin present at at IAC last year, I I don't remember if I saw their booth or one of their presentations, but um, they have a couple of different things. I think one of the coolest is a rollout radiator. And, you know, when we're talking about CubeSats, everything has to be... Uh, flip out or roll out or, or surface mounted, I guess. But for radiators, you really want them to have both sides presented to the, the cold universe. And so they have a rollout radiator that they're developing uh, using the CBER contract, um, a phase change heat storage uh, system, which is where you have, um, you know, alcohol or, or, or something that um, has, well, alcohol probably wouldn't be a good solution out in space, but it has a low melting point. Um, where you can send up an ice dump heat into it and create a gas and then store the heat through that heat change. Um, they also uh, are developing flexible heat pipes. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure why you'd want a flexible heat pipe, except maybe for the you know, this rollout radiator is going to need a flexible heat pipe, but you know, maybe you have another articulated component that you need to be able to have a flexible heat pipe for, but if you don't need a flexible heat pipe, another fantastic thing they're doing is doing added manufacturing for structurally integrated heat pipes, where your actual, the structure of your vehicle can have those heat pipes embedded in it, which is like the absolute opposite of of a flexible heat pipe, right? But it means that you get all this extra room because you don't have to worry about mounting brackets. Um, you don't have to worry about inefficient packing, right? Because, you know, uh, they'll even sometimes take heat pipes and squish them out flat so that they can pack them better, squish them into you know a more a more cubical cross section so that you can um pack them tighter and get them into smaller spaces um but just integrating them directly into your structure is fantastic you get you get the best of both worlds so there you go it's kind kind of a helter skelter list of things to talk about but um I, I would recommend going and, and reading this article just if you want to get a, a baseline for for what challenges the industry is facing and, and how we expect them to overcome it.
0: Okay, let's do our standard three short and sweets. What's the first one, Ben? All right, first up, Dragon's first commercial crew mission.
1: The first operational launch of a SpaceX commercial crew mission, right? Not the demo mission. This first operational launch now has a date of no earlier than October 23rd. Initial timetables had Crew-1 launching as early as August 30th. However, after the launch of Demo-2, NASA determined it needed more time to complete certification work on Dragon. The next NET launch date, no earlier than launch date, uh, was targeted for sometime in September, but due to other visiting vehicles, to the station. That date now sits at October 23rd. The benefit of this later launch date is that it will allow for overlap and crew rotation with Crew 2, which will reuse the Demo 2 Endeavour spacecraft.
0: And then uh, next up, a new industry seeks standardization. The growth of the satellite servicing industry in recent years has prompted the need for a standardized system for on-orbit servicing. And at the end of Space Tech Expo Connect online conference, certain needed standardizations were discussed, such as docking fixtures, data and power connection interfaces, and fuel transfer connections. Joseph Anderson of the Mission Extension Vehicle Program at Space Logistics said that in the next two years, all satellites should be launched with standardized grapple fixtures to ensure serviceability for a visiting vehicle. So that's kind of neat. All vehicles now should have grapple fixtures. Weird thought.
2: And finally, Ingenuity recharges its batteries on its trip to Mars. Tucked on the underside of the Perseverance rover, the Mars helicopter Ingenuity received a checkout and its first battery recharge in space. The Rotorcraft's six lithium-ion batteries are now at 35% charge, which is an optimal level for its journey to the Red Planet. With everything working well, a similar operation will be performed roughly every two weeks to maintain an acceptable charge level. Ingenuity will be the first Rotorcraft to fly on another planet once Mars 2020 reaches Jezero Crater next February, where it will rely on solar power during its 30-day experimental mission.
1: Okay, stand by We're looking at
0: it. questions comments and correction burns and this week we have uh, mostly just some interesting comments Uh, we might do a whole other news story here just because it was sent to us by one of our listeners Andrew and um, yeah so this is about a a negative pressure lower body type of a suit I don't know what you'd call it sort of like I I guess you could think of it as the opposite of what you know like Air Force pilots use right because they have Mm -hmm. they have little bladders that try and you know force blood up but in space you want to try to force that blood back down towards your feet Um, so yeah
1: yeah so thanks Andrew Andrew sends us so many um news articles i mean we we've given him hat tips in the past but like he also sends us a bunch of articles or or um papers that like they're they're really good but i'm just like i don't know how to put this in a news item so here here's my attempt um if anybody listening doesn't know what fun paper friday is uh it's a segment mm-hmm. uh done by the don't panic geocast which is really good but I mean, you know, if you, if it didn't sound familiar, you got to go listen to, uh, the Don't Panic Geocast. It's geologists talking about all sorts of kind of nerdy stuff. <laughs> but anyway, they, they do a fun paper Friday every week where they grab a, a fun paper and, and kind of talk about it and, you know, to, to some extent make fun of it and. You know, use it to, to joke. And this is definitely something in that category. I wouldn't be surprised if they've actually gone over this paper. But anyway, uh, if you have a fun paper that you want to send in, that you want to try to get us to look at something that's not news, it's, it's got to be super spacey, right? It's got to be engineering, but send it in. Maybe, maybe we can, um, come up with our own segment title and, and add it. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. So this is a paper that was published in the journal Frontiers in Physiology. Um, it was published uh, by Niki Ashiri and Alan Hargens, um, both of which uh, work for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California in San Diego and the Department of Bioengineering at the University of California. And uh, the article will be uh, linked in the show notes. But basically, they developed... Uh, vacuum pants. Um, yeah, uh, this is exactly what I was going to call it. Um, Colin, uh, says, uh, rubber vacuum pants that suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so here's the basic idea. LBNP stands for lower body negative pressure. And it's this idea that we can combat some of the negative effects of being in microgravity by applying negative pressure Uh, to the lower half of your body and kind of suck some of the blood back down from your head, right? One of the things that astronauts suffer from is decreased Uh, smell and taste sensation and the feeling that they are constantly walking around with a stuffy nose because your body is built to push blood against gravity from your feet back up to your head. And in space, that's completely unhelpful. So uh, another acronym to know is GRF, that's ground reaction force. Um, And the efficacy of an LBNP device is uh, one of the ways that we measure it is by converting the effects of the device to GRFs, ground reaction forces. And so GRF is usually expressed in terms of mean maximum body weight. So basically, if we apply uh, negative pressure, how much can we fake out body weight, right? How much of your body weight can we replace using this negative pressure? Um, so for example... Uh, running, walking and squatting in microgravity with resistance uh, can generate 65 to 70 percent of your ground, your GRF on the ground. But the problem is those exercise activities cannot be done consistently. You basically have to take an hour or two away from uh, science or or recreation, you know, and, and put that into combating uh, the effects of of, of microgravity.
0: So before, well, before we go any further, so does this mean I get the negative pressure part, but as far as increasing bone density, right, which is what you're talking about here, maybe I'm missing something, but how are they doing that part? Because <laughs> I don't see... Right.
1: What... So, so here's the problem. There are a bunch of different uh, of deleterious effects that microgravity has on, on the body. Um, one of them is bone density. Um, and so exercising will help combat bone density loss. When we think about using LBNP, uh, lower body negative pressure, I'm telling you acronyms, uh, LBNP is mostly going to be combating the pressure buildup in the upper half of your body. So um, these pants might also address um, bone decalcification and muscle atrophy, but we'll get to that in a sec. Just to introduce you to GRF as a measurement, 65 to 75% is what you're going to get out of exercising with resistance. Now, to talk a little bit about LBNP, um, we have, uh, LBNP machines on the ground and they're, they're basically, um, like iron lungs. You know, how we used to, instead of using ventilators for people who couldn't breathe, we would have, we would just put their entire body with their head sticking out in a pressure vessel and then, increase and decrease the pressure inside that pressure chamber to force air in and out of their lungs. Well, imagine something similar, but just for your waist down. Um, that is a classic uh, LBMP device. Obviously, that's never going to fly in space. We're never going to dedicate um, that much Room not that much mass and that much volume uh, to to a device like this. So Roscosmos invented a L- LBMP device that's a lot less bulky. It's called the Chibis device, and I googled Chibis, and of course Google went, "Oh, you want uh, information about Chibis, the the Japanese art form, uh, the 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 subsection of manga." Uh, yeah, I was like, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, that's not what I want. So, uh, Chibis is a set of rubber pants, um, and they use them on Salyut stations, but there's also a Chibis on ISS and they use them to prepare cosmonauts to return to earth. I don't know how often they use them, but they, they have been used on ISS as well. And the problem with Chibis is that the power unit is fixed to the wall because it's a giant, uh, power unit. And you can't walk around with it or you can't float around with it. And so if you're going to use Chibis, you have to stay next to it. And so you can do some work that you wouldn't be able to do if you're exercising, but you're not going to be able to really uh, have the mobility that you want. Um, so these uh, scientists developed a novel suit, you know, half suit. Um, that has integrated, uh, vacuum generators and power packs. So you can put this thing on and go and do whatever you want. Um, and so the point of this is that it's going to be able to be something that's worn over longer periods of time than you would ever be able to spend exercising. Um, the lower body is sealed off and it's got um, knee joints, they describe them as Pac-Man joints, um, which allow you to actually have no contact, no restriction of the knee joint, which is pretty nice because, um, this whole thing is going to turn into a vacuum bag and that would make actually bending your knees pretty awkward. Um, and this thing is slim. It only needs three or four inches of clearance around your waist. Now, if you have a single unit or, you know, only a, a limited variety of sizes in space, you may have people who have to bump up to the next largest size. And they're going to have more than three or four inches of clearance around their waist, but that's the minimum required. So it's, I mean, you can think about, you know, if you were wearing a belt that sat three or four inches around your waist, yeah, it's bulky, but it's, it's not bad. You can, you can get some work done with this, with this pair of rubber pants on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the whole thing acts by axial contraction. Um, so if you think about you know, the length of your leg, we're going to squeeze in on it all, on all sides. I mean, it's just what you'd imagine, but axial contraction is a nice fancy word. So the axial con- uh, contraction is addressing pressure in your lower legs, but then they actually transfer this load up to your torso because um, part of a vacuum bag is going to be or part, part of that vacuum uh, bag is going to be pressing against the bottom of your feet. And so these, these, these rubber pants are going to want to come Off of your pants, right? They're going to want to slip down. And so they actually use um, a very fancy set of suspenders to transfer the load up through your torso. So not only are they squeezing your legs, but they're also pulling your shoulders and your feet together. And so we can actually transfer some of that, some of that squeezing benefit through the rest of your body, but just not, not as strongly through your upper body.
0: That's a pretty cool so, idea.
1: Yeah. And that, that's beginning to get to your question, but we, we've got more, your question about, um, exercise, David, but there's more that goes into it. So David, you, you were asking about the different effects of microgravity. So basic, the, the major thing that we're trying to combat is not the lack of smell sensation, right? That's, that's nice. That's not everything. Colin in the chat just posted, uh, Wallace in his, uh, mechanical, <laughs> mechanical legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, the effect that we really understand well, uh, in microgravity and, and that we understand how to combat well is neuro, os- uh, neuro-oscular syndrome specifically spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome. And that's where I think it's like uh, half of the people who go to space wind up with blurry vision and have to put reading glasses on. And that's just because the pressure inside your eye, in the in the humerus, increases and deforms your eye. And over long periods of time, it can actually permanently damage your vision. So this is a, a really fantastic way to combat that because we understand how Uh, what causes the vision loss, and we understand uh, how efficient LBNP is at combating it. But the paper also suggests that this pair of pants can address bone decalcification and muscle atrophy And so they specifically say, we can combat this, but it's not clear how effective they're going to be, uh, at, at doing it. But what, what they're thinking, I believe is that they're assuming that the mechanical resistance of these suction pants will actually, um, count as lower body exercise. Um, and then the, I believe the suspenders transferring load into your, um, into your torso also might help. Um, keep your bones from decalcifying now it, they didn't study how um how efficient or how effective this is, and i don't know if you Really can do that without a long-term study, which is uh, hard to fund and also hard to replicate on the ground.
0: So the thing that I'm thinking that is still a little bit of a mystery, and I guess what needs to be studied is that if you have these pants on, you're still going to be effectively floating, which is to say that you, like you don't have your feet that are anchored to anything because you can't do that obviously. So you're just going to be floating around as you normally would be, but you are going to be trying to push your feet like straight because if not, you could just like let them bend forward, right?
1: Uh, yeah. So so <laughs> the the nice thing about the suit is that knee joint and so it's going to limit the amount of bending moment i guess that the suit places on your legs so when you put it on i don't believe that it particularly makes your knees want to bend so it's resistance and not just a default leg bent position Um, Mm -hmm. moving your leg um, bent and unbent is going to be a little harder to do but it's not like you're like the suit is going to apply a default position to your legs so let's talk about the actual testing that they did. Um, they were comparing their suit against a traditional LBMP chamber, like the big box. And so the way that they, the way that they set up this test was they had the, um, test subjects lie on their backs and then they wanted to suspend them so, so that they didn't have any friction against, uh, like a table or a bed. Um, So they can get some more um, movement out of the test subject so they can get um, an idea of how much compression is actually happening. So they put them on a spinal board that was suspended. They call it a zero friction spinal board. Um, But from what I can tell, it's it's just a spinal board suspended on all four corners with cabling. So it can move in the horizontal plane um, without encountering much resistance. And then they also suspended the occupant's legs using three different points um one suspension rig goes around the hips, one around the thighs, and then one around the the lower legs. What's really nice about this setup is they didn't have to fabricate one. They actually had this exact setup already in the LBMP chamber that they were doing comparisons against. So, um for both the suit test and the chamber test, they had the occupants or the, the test subjects in a chamber, in the exact same chamber, just in one test, they had the pants on the other one. They didn't. So then to collect the data, they put force sensors on the soles of their test subjects feet and then uh, applied vacuum, uh, and tested how much force was applied. And so remember those suspenders transfer all this load up through the torso. Um, so when they're seeing force applied to the feet, it's not just force applied from uh, to the legs from the waist down, it's your entire, uh, body minus your head is actually getting compressed. A standard chamber generates 91 kilograms plus or minus 24% of mean maximum body weight. So that's, uh, GRF, a, a GRF measurement. So 21 kilograms. The gravity suit generated 125 kilograms plus or minus 22%. And that's really cool because it's actually better than the equipment that we had before. Both in terms of effect and in terms of of mobility, pretty cool.
0: I'm sure we'll have the link in the show notes. But it looks like you said it's, it's a little bit cumbersome, but not that bad. But I think if mm-hmm. they can maybe just shrink it a little bit more, then it'll be perfect. And that's something that everyone can you know wear on board station, mm-hmm. and they don't have to waste you know two hours a day doing hardcore cardio. <laughs>
1: well, they I mean they still will do. I I, I don't think that we're ever going to see exercise not being part of, of the routine, but you know, it can get limited. We can, we don't have to do as hard of a workout or as long of a workout. Um, yeah. So one benefit is that it's, it's more mobile, but also the whole thing is more efficient, um, than a traditional LBMP chamber. Um, because it has lower surface area, you can get a greater effect using lower pressures, Um, And so you don't even have to work as hard or spend as much electrical energy or, you know, therefore have as much electrical storage on board. And, and that's, that's pretty darn cool. Um, So there you go. That's uh, that's. The first and maybe only (laughs) Mm -hmm. Fun Paper Friday.
0: All right. And then with that, what is next?
2: Yeah. So we got a few uh, corrections from two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. I made some uh, incorrect statements. Uh, So
0: I think we both did with regard to the first one here we have on the list.
2: Yeah. So the first one, I realized I totally mischaracterized the point I was trying to make. Uh, We were talking about uh, nuclear reactors on the moon. Uh, The question, uh, you know, David talked about, you know, are we talking about? reactors or RTGs and I said well you know it's they're basically the same and what I meant was the same physics right they're both based on nuclear fission but should we mm-hmm. correctly pointed out that you know reactors are you know dependent on a chain reaction while RTGs are just dependent on the radioactive decay of your source and so we do not have you know giant RTGs in you know our nuclear power plants on earth and we do not have little mini fusion reactors uh, attached to mm-hmm. sorry fission reactors attached to Voyager 2 right now. So uh, thank you for that. That was a good point. I After listening to the episode, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely did not get that across one bit. And then um, I'm going to consider this next one a tag team. Uh, unfortunately, I have the problem of thinking that coming within a factor of two is good enough for government work. And so when I talked about the highest flying birds, I threw out an initial guess of 100,000 feet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew it was ridiculously high, uh, but that we later figured out, okay, no, it's more like 50 some thousand feet. There was a vulture that's been, you know, recorded at that altitude. And at some point, you know, after that was figured out, you know, I remember reflecting on it, uh, and saying, oh yeah, right. At a hundred thousand feet is when, you know, high altitude, you know, weather balloons will pop, you know, so (laughs) there really could not be birds flying up there. But unfortunately that didn't quite make the, uh, final edit. And so all I said was birds flying at 100,000 feet without any kind of correction. So that was a a legit correction, Bird. Thank you for that. And uh, this one, I totally, you know, we were, me and David were talking past each other, uh, I think. uh, And so when it came to uh, Dragon 2's first, you know, water touchdown since either 1975 or 1976, that depends on whether or not you're talking about the first time Americans have returned. Uh, or did right. a splashdown? That was in 1975 with the Apollo Soyuz test project. Or if you were just talking about people in general, that would be 1976 with Soyuz 23 doing a splashdown.
0: Yeah, but I thought so, that I did point out that I was talking about the American space program. But maybe yeah, I didn't.
2: I and know. so I think that one is kind of more of a clarification as well because you know you were yeah you did you were accurately talking about. You were talking about Apollo Soyuz, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's why I brought you from 76 back to 75. But I think you might have said 76 in the first place because maybe somewhere it was reported. Right. Yeah, beds, yeah. You know, the Soyuz 23. So that's uh, that was good. I mean, that's that's kind of these clarifications are sort of the, the beauty of this. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I had no idea that, you know, any Soyuzes were splashing down um, in the 70s. And so uh, that surprised me. So thank you for those, uh, corrections. And I also want to point out, uh, Chubby's, uh, uh, screenwriting, uh, potential. And so if anybody <laughs> wants to go and, uh, send some work his way, uh, he says, quote, uh, so after we were talking about the, um, uh, this week in spaceflight, uh, about the, uh, the, the ooze, right? This is why we talked about birds and bird strikes in the first place. Uh, the ooze that hit the shuttle, uh, window on its return and um how that wound up in a coffee cup uh and inadvertently uh consumed by an engineer at some point that uh according to Chubby quote the black sludge story sounds like the beginning of a horror movie the next scene should show the technician turning into john carpenter's thing and so i like that sentiment
0: 100% <laughs> i have never seen the thing but i hear it's a classic sci-fi oh it movie. is
2: a classic it's so good and i i and you know what the 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 newer one I don't want to say much about it just I'll just call it the newer one. Uh, I thought it was okay. It, or not okay. I thought it was good. I liked it. Um, but the originals are classic. Welcome to the interview portion of the show where we are, uh, we have our guest, uh, Katie Pilichowski, a professor of astronomy at Indiana University and an absolute expert when it comes to telescopes. So, <laughs> Katie, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Nice, nice to chat with all of you. We talk about usually telescopes, uh, in space, but we sometimes will touch on ones on the ground. Uh, a lot of them share similar hardware and design, and there's, uh, There's a lot to get into there, but I guess maybe you could just uh, start by telling us a little about yourself.
3: So I'm a professor here at Indiana University, which is, I've been here uh, not quite, but almost 20 years. And I love it here. I'm looking out my window at beautiful green trees and love working with students and all of that. But before I came to Indiana, I was a staff member at the National Optical Astronomy Observatory now known as the uh, National Optical Infrared Laboratory of the National Science Foundation. Um, And I worked in Tucson on telescopes and instruments and research and helping the community doing research and all the things that that happen at a national observatory. Awesome.
2: I'm actually in Tucson now. I used to be at the U of A at Stewart Observatory, but now I teach at the community college and I send uh, my students up to Kitt Peak all the time. And so one of the coolest looking telescopes up there... Uh, just by shape is certainly the WIND telescope. So, <laughs> I hope we'll have an opportunity to
3: talk about that. Oh, I'd love to. Yes.
2: <laughs> While you were at uh, NOAO, I mean, yeah. Let's let's get into the WIND. So, the WIND is the uh, is is a it's a three point five meter telescope, and you were the project scientist for its design and construction. What exactly does that position entail, like as a practical? Oh, matter. yeah.
3: <laughs> so, a project scientist is a person who works closely with, um, and sort of is an interface between the engineering effort, the construction effort, and the scientific community that will use the telescope and the objectives of that community. And so the project scientist uh, looks at what the telescope can do, how that matches the goals of the science for which the telescope is being built, makes sure that the telescope is optimized to do that particular uh, batch of scientific experiments or observations that we're designing it for, and just sort of serves as that interface of communication and, and cross-check on science and engineering. As all the decisions get made, during the design and construction of
0: a telescope. So that's kind of what I thought it was, because I was curious about what that title meant. Um, and I'm still kind of curious, because I've never given it much thought, who actually designs, you know, these giant pieces of scientific equipment? Because there are obviously, there are very minute details that have to be addressed, because you're actually building something. It could just be like a regular building, but in this case, it's a giant telescope. So do you collaborate that closely? like, Or is it just that you give some pointers, and then somebody who I guess is like an architect, but I guess not? <laughs> like, I'm kind of wondering, who builds these? things, who actually designs them?
3: Yeah. So these modern telescopes are super complicated. Wynn was designed in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And in the last 30 years, uh, it's gotten even more complicated. But Wynn was amongst the most complicated telescopes of its time way back then. So there, there have to be a team of people. You need an optical designer because first and foremost, you need the telescope to produce great images. And then there are constraints that go on that optical design. Uh, You want to have some field of view that's necessary to do the science you want to do. In the case of Wynn, we wanted to have a a full degree field of view for for wide-field spectroscopy and and wide-field imaging. So that was a deep constraint. Then there are constraints on on the wavelength that you want to cover with the telescope. If you're working in the infrared, that puts certain constraints on what you can do with the secondary mirror of the telescope some constraints on the focal ratio. There are constraints on uh, the coatings that go on the optics. Uh, All of these things have to work together. So you have to look at the at the science goals of the telescope and those have to get incorporated into the optical design. And then there are always uh, cost and schedule constraints that you have to work with. In the case of Wynn, we began with a mirror that was fabricated by the University of Arizona as part of their development effort to build these uh, spin-cast borosilicate mirrors, these lightweight mirrors that are now going into much larger telescopes, the eight-meter telescopes um, that have been constructed since Win, So Win was one of the three 3.5-meter blanks that were built um, for testing and development purposes way back in the, mm. in the late 1980s. Two, the two other of these blanks, one went to the Astrophysics Research Consortium, which was a group of universities and was built into a telescope in New Mexico. And the second blank went to the U.S. military uh, and went into a telescope in, uh, near Albuquerque. And then we got the third one at the National Observatory. And we didn't, at the time, have a plan of what to do with this mirror, aside from some testing to understand how the mirrors behave. This is a new, a new uh, technology for building mirrors. How did they behave? What could they achieve? How would they work? So we, at the observatory, received this mirror for testing purposes, and it occurred to several of us that it was silly to have a 3.5-meter telescope mirror and not have a telescope to put it into. (laughs) And so we collaborated with a group of universities to form the Wynn Consortium with a plan to build the telescope to put this mirror into. There was a lot of discussion about what it would do, where it would go, how it would work what the consortium would look like. And it ended up as the WIND telescope, which you have seen up on Kitt Peak. Okay, and, and I think now's
2: a good time also to point out that Win is actually a uh, an acronym. Is that not, and I think, I think it's
3: changed over the years, but what was it originally? Um... <laughs> <laughs> so it's always, well, let's see. The consortium started with University of Wisconsin, Indiana University, so that's the W and the I. The N was the National Observatory. And, uh, the Y before the N was Yale University. So the four, uh, institutions were partners in building this telescope. Uh, since then, Yale has withdrawn from the consortium and, and bought, uh, time on, uh, other facilities, a larger telescopes, which is probably pretty smart of them. <laughs> uh, so we don't have the Y anymore, uh, but we still keep the name. And then in addition to the, Three remaining original partners. A number of other universities have bought into the consortium, or buy uh, regularly buy time on the telescope. Mm. And those include uh, institutions like Purdue University, University of Missouri, Penn State, and other institutions from time to time that uh, want access to the to the facility.
2: Yeah, I was wondering, kind of like you know, what happens when you <laughs> when you lose a partner like that? Why just okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, so an- another another part of that, uh, or related story, is the the MMT, the Multiple Mirror Telescope on Mount Hopkins, south of Tucson. That was originally built with a set of mirrors, uh, I believe they were about 72 inches, uh, that formed a hexagonal array mm. of mirrors, hence the name Multiple Mirror Telescope, or MMT. But once the uh, mirror lab got going at the University of Arizona, they replaced those multiple mirrors with a single mirror. Uh, but kept the name it's still the MMT the multiple mm. mirror telescope observatory uh, but it's not multiple mirrors anymore so the name's become part of the history
2: mm-hmm. i see so it's kind of like a kfc where they got rid of it just is the letters <laughs> <laughs>
3: exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so if we could go back to the to the mirror um you said that three blanks were made first What's involved in spin casting a mirror? And second, what testing were you intended to perform? And did that differ um, from the other two facilities that received blanks?
3: So the process of casting one of these mirrors is very, very involved. First, you have to build a giant furnace. And uh, for the development purposes, the furnace that was built at the University of Arizona mirror lab would accommodate a 3.5 meter mirror. Uh, within that furnace, there's a mold that's installed, and this is a, a lightweight material that's refractory, so it's impervious to the high temperature of melted glass, but can be sort of broken down and washed out. Mm-hmm. The mold creates uh, a series of cavities behind the faceplate of the mirror where there's no glass, and the glass sort of leaks around the edges of the of the cavities um, to produce a rib structure. It supports the faceplate of the glass, and then there's a backplate that the glass seeps into as well. So you end up with a an ultra-lightweight mirror that is has got a backplate and, and a front plate, but is basically empty. And I use the word furnace because it really is a furnace. You pile the glass on top of the mold, heat it up, and then spin the furnace at something like, oh, I don't know, one RPM or so. And that creates centrifugal force, which pushes the glass into a bowl shape. That provides the preliminary front surface of the mirror uh, so that you have an approximately correct curvature for the focal ratio that you want the primary mirror to have. Once the glass has sort of distributed itself with the centrifugal force, you allow the furnace to cool off until the glass solidifies or hardens, and then you can stop spinning the glass and and let let the the mirror cool off. Once that's done, you can remove the mirror from the furnace, uh, basically wash out the refractory material with a high-pressure water hose, and then you're left with a with a blank mirror that is about the right shape but is not ready yet for actually being in a telescope. The front surface has to be uh, properly reshaped, uh, ground down to the right, exactly the right curvature, smoothed out so it's very, very smooth. And then you have a telescope blank that's ready for really final testing or installation in the telescope. In the case of the testing that we did at NOIO, We were primarily involved with thermal testing, trying to understand how the mirror behaved with temperature change. Mm. That's a really critical problem for astronomy, mirrors, because if the shape of the mirror changes with temperature, particularly if it changes in a non-uniform way, then the mirror is unable to produce really sharp images. And so the testing we were doing had to do with trying to understand how precisely we had to control the temperature of the mirror, and developing the technology by which we could do that. Uh, that technology involved basically actively maintaining the temperature of the mirror by blowing temperature-controlled air into the the uh, cavities behind the faceplate uh, so that we could maintain a uniform temperature across the whole surface of the mirror. That turned out to be very successful. And Wynn, in fact, produces really, really superb images on Kitt Peak. Uh, the best seeing we get is something like a quarter of an arc second, which is remarkably good. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for a telescope of that size on the ground. That's without adaptive optics. That is straight uh, taking advantage of the native seeing on the site. We don't get it every night. The median seeing is about three quarters of an arc second, but the mirror is capable of really remarkably good seeing.
2: That is, is, those are very good numbers. I, I spent most of my time at Kitt Peak uh, at the 90-inch, and mm-hmm. being at the saddle point, I think the probably the median arc, uh, the median seeing was like one and a quarter, one and a half. It wow. would, like The wind just would go over that saddle point.
3: It was just terrible. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the elevation of that telescope, the, the height of the telescope over the ground is fairly low. Uh, the 4-meter, when they when they put in the venting and improved the active control of mirror temperature temperature. Uh, a while, long time ago, mm-hmm. they were able to get a slightly sub-arc-second uh, median seeing. It, before that, it wasn't nearly that good, uh, More like probably more like an arc-second, but they were able to get better, uh, maybe even eight-tenths, once they uh, made the improvements to the mirror control and the ventilation in the dome. It really matters, you know, where you put it, how high it is off the ground, how well you control the internal mirror seeing um, and, the, and the thermal environment in the dome. All of that makes a huge difference.
2: Well speaking of which, um I know very little about dome design, but I've always heard that wind's shape kind of made it a superior dome in terms of like thermal like control acclimating the uh the area the telescope to the ambient temperature. Is that is that true why it has that non it's not just like a like a spherical cap, right? It's got this kind of very polygonal type shape to it.
3: <laughs> yes, that's a that's a part of it. Uh, Wynn adopted the same sort of overall design that was made for the Magellan telescopes down in Chile, which worked extremely well. Mm. But it, it has several aspects. First of all, the dome, uh, or the enclosure, as we call it, because it's no longer a dome is thermally insulated and that helps to maintain the internal temperature of the enclosure, uh, to be close to the nighttime ambient temperature. And that means that the, uh, all of the, the heat with, there isn't a lot of heat in the, within the enclosure that creates air currents within the enclosure, which affects the quality of the sea. So keeping it cold is important. Uh, cooling it is important. And then monitoring, or not monitoring, but but designing to uh, not leave warm air pockets inside the enclosure is another important step. So that enclosure design was tested in a wind tunnels to understand what the airflow is inside the enclosure under different wind conditions. Different directions. Uh, you you've seen the vents that are around the perimeter of the enclosure that allow uh, nighttime air to flow through the enclosure and to maintain a uniform internal and external inside outside a temperature within the wind enclosure. All of those things contribute to the quality of the images that the telescope is able to produce.
1: So so how precise is your temperature control? Um, and and I guess that's a factor of both the enclosure design and the active. Uh, the act of cooling on the, on the back of the, of the glass.
3: Yes. So the mirror itself is maintained at a temperature that's within a degree of the ambient nighttime air temperature. That requires predicting a little bit in advance what the nighttime air temperature is going to be and then controlling the air going into the mirror to achieve that. Uh, that is set particularly by the fact that much of the seeing that, that causes problems for astronomers results in the few inches just above the surface of the mirror. If the mirror is not at ambient nighttime air temperature, there are small air currents that occur right above the mirror that contribute to poor seeing. And so uh, keeping it at at nighttime temperature is appropriate. And then also, the uh, mirror has to be of uniform temperature. And that is a sub-degree specification that it has to be kept basically the same temperature all across the mirror,
0: and so that can change just because uh, parts. I suppose at the edge of the mirror that are holding it can actually, you know, sap off some of the heat or contribute to heat.
3: Yeah. So a modern telescope is surrounded by electronics. It's surrounded by a complex environment. The wind mirror is also actively controlled. That means that there are little um, sort of push-pull arms that are inside of each of those cavities that are that's on the back side of the mirror, and those cavities also help control the fine shape of the mirror. So a telescope mirror can't just sit in one direction uh, statically. It's constantly moving. It's constantly changing the gravity load on the mirror itself as you point to different directions in the sky or track an object that's moving across the sky. Uh, even stars you know, move across the sky at fast enough rates that, that the gravity vector on the mirror changes. So in addition to the temperature control, there are active actuators that push and pull on the surface to maintain the temperature, not the temperature, but the, act- the control of the mirror. This is done in an open-loop way, in the sense that at the beginning of the night, the uh, quality of the image that's being produced by the, by the mirror is tested and examined, and the push-pulls are uh, adjusted to produce the right quality. And then as the mirror changes direction, changes tip or tilt, the uh, actuators automatically adjust to correct For the changing gravity load of the telescope. So all of this electronics that goes to the mirror control, to the temperature sensors, to adjust the air temperatures, to um, manage the telescope motions, to, to, to control the instruments that are attached to the telescope, all of those things that surround the mirror produce heat. And that heat is what causes the problems on the mirror. You can easily get uh, small temperature gradients that can affect the quality of the images. These are complicated instruments. Yeah, for real. one by modern standards
1: (laughs) so so you said that the actuators have an open loop control so they're not looking at the image that's coming in and adjusting it based on that data you set them up ahead of time and then they just follow a control um, path based on the direction that you're pointing in the speeds or am i misunderstanding that
3: that's correct okay that's correct and when win was built in the early 1990s that was uh basically the limit of the technology that we could afford at the time. In the last 30 years, there's been a huge, huge advance in adaptive optics. And so telescopes of that size or, or larger ones that are being built today have active controls of their primary mirrors and routinely operate with adaptive optics, uh, both in maintaining the shape of the primary mirror, but also in subsequent stages in the optical train between the primary mirror and the instrument, uh, correct for for uh, deformations or deviations in the, the plane of the light coming into mm-hmm. the instrument so that we get even better instruments that can correct for atmospheric seeing and some of the more subtle effects that a wind cannot correct for.
1: That That's really fascinating. I, I didn't realize that there was, I mean, I, I know about um uh, adaptive optics but i didn't realize that there were non-adaptive telescopes that still had such fine control or i, g- I guess such you know detailed control over the shape of the mirror and everything without even um the con- without the control circuits having any understanding of what the actual image coming in was that's fascinating
3: yes well that that's there are these simple mechanical deformations mm-hmm. right that occur as telescope tips the gravity is that the mirror feels is changing in different um, different orientations. And those are, they're basically mechanical. And so you can construct uh, with testing at, at a variety of different mirror directions. You can test at those different directions. You can see what corrections are needed mm. um, at each position and then easily do those corrections as the mirror changes. Mm. That doesn't account for the temperature as well, mm-hmm. uh, but you can fold that into the model as well. If you know at a certain temperature for the mirror that it's going to deflect or deform in a certain way, you can build that into the into the model so that it will correct for those things as the mirror changes conditions.
1: So the temperature control, you said, is tied to the ambient air temperature, and that's, that's because you don't want your mirror itself generating air currents, right?
3: Correct. Well, the two things. If the mirror is too cold, then it will condense moisture, which is oh. an absolute no-no yeah. in astronomy. We don't do that. Um, So we keep it slightly warmer than the ambient air to prevent condensation, uh, but just a tiny bit warmer because otherwise we will get these mirror mirror seeing, we call it, uh, that affects the quality of the images.
1: And so you said that you use predicted ambient temperature, right? You you don't just have a thermometer stuck outside of the enclosure.
3: Oh, of course we do. (laughs) There are thermometers all over the facility, inside and outside. So there are uh, temperature sensors on the telescope, around the interior of the enclosure, um, we're constantly measuring those, um, and all of that information gets fed back into the system. Okay. So as the nighttime air temperature changes, uh, we can readjust the uh, temperature of the air going into cooling, keeping the mirror at the right temperature. If the nighttime air temperature drops, we can follow it along. Uh, we, the nighttime air temperature usually drops, so right. we right. do have to follow it along. <laughs> right. And so. Uh, we're monitoring uh, those temperatures uh, from all over the facility all the time. And that's all done automatically. It's not that people are watching. it; right. uh, It's all part of the software control system.
1: And so how quickly can you change temperature? I mean, I'm assuming that even though this is, uh, uh, like you said, a, a low-weight mirror, I'm assuming it's still got a heck of, a, a, what is it, thermal inertia, right? So yes, it does. Do lat? do you have to um, aim for a point? Like if you see cooling, are you having to aim for a point beyond the current ambient temperature to keep up with it? To track
3: it. Yes, we do. Wow! Now, remember that the glasses that astronomers use to make their telescope mirrors are uh, low index of refraction glasses. The mirrors from the mirror lab use a particular borosilicate glass. So this is a kind of a Pyrex glass. Um, And we all know how well Pyrex works working from uh, freezer to oven. It's a. pretty good at low expansion um, and this is a special even lower borosilicate than we typically have in a in a pyrex uh, cookware uh, kind of a glass so it's it's much less sensitive to temperature than normal glass and astronomers have been doing uh, building mirrors out of these low expansion glasses for a hundred years that helps uh, the borosilicate isn't as Uh, low expansion as the special corning glasses or the ULE glasses that are used in the meniscus style of mirrors, but it is pretty low expansion. And so that helps in minimizing the change in shape with modest temperature changes. So it doesn't take, I guess I should say, especially to you guys. It's not rocket science.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's so much detail that goes into, I mean, I guess every designed object that surrounds us, but this in particular, you know, scientific instruments and especially large scientific instruments like this, there's just so much depth. And it's, it's fascinating.
3: It's amazingly complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, just now, while uh, unfortunately we're during the pandemic, the telescope is closed but we're in the process of commissioning a new instrument at the telescope. This is an instrument uh, named NEID, N-E-I-D. It's a complicated acronym that I won't (laughs) try to go into, but it's a collaboration between the National Science Foundation and NASA to put an extreme precision radial velocity spectrometer on the telescope. Uh, This instrument is being built uh, at Penn State. It was delivered last fall to the observatory. And its goal is to be able to measure uh, radial velocities for host stars of exoplanets down to a level of something like 30 centimeters per second. Mm -hmm. So extreme precision radial velocity measurements. Uh, The kinds of controls that are put in place to allow that precision in uh, velocity measurement on the, the instrument, not the telescope per se, but the instrument, are even more extreme. The instrument has to live in a vacuum tank to avoid any changes in air pressure that change the index of refraction of air. It has to be ultimately extremely precisely temperature controlled so that there's no expansion or contraction of any of the optical elements in the system. Um, It's fiber-fed to avoid all kinds of variations in how the light enters the spectrograph. That light in the optical fibers is scrambled in complicated ways to sort of mix it all up so Mm. there's no... No chance of systematic error creeping into the uh, into the measurements. the The quality of the controls that are on that instrument is well. It's it's baby probably two or three generations beyond what went into the initial wind controls. Mm-hmm. Astronomy has gotten really, really skilled at making very, very high precision kinds of instruments for these modern telescopes that we are all loving to use.
0: So what are some other instruments um, at that observatory? Because uh, I see a list here of some other things.
3: Yes. So a typical telescope like Win has um, often half a dozen, sometimes six or eight instruments that are available that do different kinds of things. Wynn has a little bit more limited suite of instruments, uh, but there are several primary instruments that are mostly used at the telescope. Uh, the one I u- have used most often in the past uh, was actually built originally for the four meter, the, the Mayall telescope at Kitt Peak, and then uh, mm. reconfigured and moved over to the wind telescope. And this is the Hydra uh, multi fiber spectrograph. So this instrument is a large field of view robot that places optical fibers on a metal plate. They're held by magnets where stars will be when the telescope is pointed to the right place. And this instrument is equipped with 100 optical fibers. Actually, it's two different large fiber bundles, one for working in red light and one for working in blue light. Each one contains 100 fibers. And we can place these uh, fibers on galaxies in a galaxy cluster or stars in a star cluster or whatever objects we have in our field of view. And each fiber will collect the light from a single object bring them down to the basement of the observatory, line them up, and feed the light into a spectrograph so that we can simultaneously make observations of up to 100 objects at one time. My own work has involved a lot of observations of stars and globular star clusters. And so I'm able to get dozens of objects simultaneously, uh, not having to do them one star at a time, which takes forever, (laughs) but getting dozens of them in one shot. This is a fabulous instrument. It's one of the best multi-object spectrographs in the world, and we're immensely proud of it. And it's, uh, the spectrograph itself was designed in a way that allows it to do both uh, medium to high-resolution spectroscopy and then with some adjustments to move into low-resolution spectroscopy. So it's extremely versatile. And that's, that's sort of a double win for the astronomers to be able to do all these different things with it.
2: Mm, nice.
3: A second instrument that we have is called the one-degree imager. This is a mosaic CCD imaging camera with 48 detectors, large detectors, uh, that are 2,000 by 2,000 pixels in this large mosaic of arrays that can produce from corner to corner a one-degree image of the field of view. And so we're able to do very large sky coverage with this particular camera. And that's uh, very unusual for a telescope of this size to be able to get this sort of large, large area of the sky. The one degree imager was uh, was uh, put into operation several years ago, and it's been just a joy to work with. It, it just getting these big images is fantastic. In addition, we have an infrared camera. The wind was not designed to be to be an infrared telescope, but in the one to two micron range, it performs very very well. And with this this imaging camera, which was built at uh, Johns Hopkins University, we can get superb uh, infrared images. The camera was designed with uh, pixels of a tenth of an arc second so that we get very high spatial resolution on those nights that we get good seeing. And this work instrument, uh, the WIN high resolution infrared camera is a fabulous infrared imager. I love using it. And I, in fact, am also using it to do infrared uh, spectroscopy of globular clusters. Um, And then we have some other instruments that are less often used that are a little more specialized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Among them are some fiber bundles. These are useful, for example, if you want to get spectra of uh, many spots within a galaxy. You can place this fiber bundle on the galaxy and each different spot in the fiber bundle, there might be a 10 by 10 optical fibers in this bundle or some other Hmm. geometrical arrangement. Place them on a galaxy and you get 100 spectra of uh, different parts of the galaxy all at one time. So just a wonderful array of instruments that we have access to.
1: So this might be a simplistic question, but, you know, you mentioned that fiber instrument and then Hydra also has individual sampling fibers. How does a, spectro- uh, a spectrometer or a spectrograph?
3: The vocabulary is sort of interchangeable. Oh, okay. A spectrometer in ancient, I shouldn't say ancient, but you know, <laughs> last century parlance was often used to describe a space spectrograph or a an infrared spectrograph, oh, and the optical astronomers typically said uh, a spectrograph, but they're really the same thing, okay. <laughs> are close enough.
1: Okay, so so when you when you have these sort of instruments, how do they differ from like a CCD? Because if you're imaging the whole sky. Or you know if you've got a CCD which has got all these pixels laid out, how are those pixels not able to do spectroscopy in the same way that a dedicated fiber instrument can?
3: So those those fiber spectrographs actually feed into a spec. The fiber feeds into a spectrograph. Within the spectrograph, the typical optical elements are a collimator, which takes the diverging beam of light from the fiber and makes it into a parallel beam of light. That parallel beam of light goes onto a grating which disperses the light into a spectrum and that dispersed but parallel light, so each different color of the light is in a slightly different direction from the dispersion, but they're parallel beams for a given color. That light goes into a camera which then refocuses the light onto a CCD. The CCD, what falls on the CCD is then a spectrum. So it's narrow and long, skinny and, and long, each pixel on the CCD receives a different wavelength of light. We read out the CCD just as we would in an imaging camera, but the image we read out has this long, skinny spectrum on it. We then extract that uh, long, skinny spectrum from the large two-dimensional image and work with the spectrum itself. Mm-hmm. So we take that two-dimensional image with the spectrum, turn the spectrum into a one-dimensional array of numbers.
1: Interesting. So, so, uh, uh, Two dimensional CCD that collects, you know, red, green, blue is counting all the pixels in very big buckets, whereas um, a spectrograph is using a two dimensional array of pixels and is able to split those colors into many, many, many buckets that are really small and give you higher color resolution, I guess you might call it.
3: Yes. So in astronomy, the CCDs that we use for imaging do not independently observe red, green, and blue at the same time, like a cell phone camera does. So those those cameras in your cell phones have, uh, each pixel is subdivided into three smaller pixels, uh, one that's sort of twice the size, of uh, equal in size to the other two.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, the, the red and blue ones are small, and the green one is pretty large. Um, but there, each pixel is a set of red, green, and blue color sensors. And they only, each one only sees light of its particular color. Uh, and then all those pixels, uh, they're read out, preserving those different color images, those color, three color images are combined to produce the color image you see on the cell phone. For astronomy CCDs, we don't do that. Each of the pixels sees only or all of the light that falls on that pixel, independent of what the color is. It counts all of that together. When we take Color images in astronomy, we use uh, filters and we'll take three separate images. So, if we wanted to get a natural color image, we would take a blue filter, take a picture, we use a green filter, take a picture, take a red filter, take a picture. And then later in the computer, we would combine those to make a color image. And so, our CCDs are all monochromatic. They don't distinguish color at all, they just take all the light that falls on a pixel and record how much of that light there is.
1: And that makes sense. As soon as you said that, I went, oh, yeah, of course. Because um, if, if you use a color CCD, you're not getting individual pixels. You're just breaking the sky up into different filters, which is really unhelpful if you're trying to get very high-resolution images. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So,
2: okay, everything we've talked about so far has been terrestrial. But when it comes to space-based telescopes, do all the same principles apply? Do people who worked on ground-based ones sometimes go into space or there's the other way around? Or I don't know, could you could you <laughs> maybe talk about that or your thoughts on some of the new ones that are coming up, uh, JWST or Louvoir or... You know, kind of anywhere you want to go with this, I guess.
3: <laughs> oh, sure. So most of the astronomers I know use both ground and space in some form or another. The two capabilities are so complementary, and they depend so much on each other. Uh, one one current and very prominent example is the TESS mission, NASA's uh, Terrestrial Exoplanet Survey Satellite, mm. uh, which is is looking at nearby stars, Looking for transits that would indicate the presence of planets—that's wonderful. We can discover these planet candidates with with this fantastic satellite that NASA launched. But if we want to follow up on those things and, and make measurements of those planets, uh, learn more about them, we need ground-based follow-up with spectrographs. That's what the new spectrograph on Wynn was built to do. So this complementarity between the finding things with space, and then uh, getting radio velocity measurements from the ground is essential if we want to make progress in exoplanet science. This is also true for for example with Hubble. Everybody loves the the various Hubble deep fields, the original deep field, the ultra deep field, the extreme deep field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of these amazing images that NASA brings us through Hubble of these distant distant galaxies in space, we need large ground-based telescopes to measure their spectra, to learn something much more about what these objects are, what they're doing, uh, what their distances are, from their their redshifts. These are complementary capabilities. So I I just don't see we would not have made the progress we've made over the last thirty years without this complementary capability. Mm. And it's not just in optical light; it's it's all the wavelength regions. So being able to get infrared images from from the infrared satellites that have come, or with the in, infrared instruments on Hubble, being able to Look at microwave sources from space instrumentation. All of these things, the X-ray sources, the gamma ray sources, all of these are are important to do to be able to observe the full electromagnetic spectrum in a complementary way. It's really it's really been a golden age in astronomy because of this complementarity between the ground and space, opening up so many new opportunities for discovery. And James Webb is going to do that. In spades for us. (laughs) With the larger aperture, the uh, location at L2, the kinds of instruments that it has on board, being able to get the very high, getting the angular resolution and getting the the spectroscopy and the infrared that it's going to be able to do, it's going to open whole new opportunities to look at the early universe, to look at, at star formation, to understand it in ways that we haven't been able to before. It just has, it works together so beautifully.
2: So so this the idea of just, you know, let's just leave the ground altogether and put every telescope in space is neither practical <laughs> from a financial perspective, nor would that really be helpful.
3: I, I have to say that's absolutely right. Space has been amazingly successful, and the ground has contributed to that. Ground-based astronomy has been amazingly successful, and space has contributed to that. And there are ways that both of them stand alone. But together, they, they stand so much strong, more, more strongly.
0: That's got me thinking, is there any unique capability you would have by putting a telescope on, say, the moon? Like, would that be like a third? Oh,
3: we would love to do that. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so so the prob- one of the issues with space is that we cannot make a large enough aperture. It's just too expensive to get a huge aperture telescope. And for some applications, we simply need really, really, really big apertures to collect a lot of light. So the moon is a wonderful place to do that. It has no atmosphere. So um, you can get extraordinarily high angular resolution imaging with a large telescope from on the moon. If we only had the money to do it, that mm-hmm. would be absolutely fantastic. And then there is the atmosphere, which limits what we can do from the ground. There are many frequencies and wavelengths where we simply cannot make observations from the ground, but we could do it from the moon. So yeah. <laughs> It would be fantastic. I know that the recent plan that NASA released mentions, although it doesn't go into much detail, the uh, the report that they released about the sort of uh, South Pole station on the Moon Mm. as a as a as sort of a base station for many projects that could be done on the Moon. And one of those was a far side lunar observatory that would be wonderful for astronomers. I hope that they can find a solution for the dust problem. Optimistic that technology will find solutions to those problems. Uh, But it would be absolutely super to have a large telescope on the far side of the moon.
1: So we were introduced by Nicole over at Podchaser. I I wanted to say her name real quick, because she actually introduced us to two different guests that we've had on the show. And it was really nice to have her just reach out and say, hey, I've got some guests for you. It was It's pretty cool. But one of the things that Nicole said that you were interested in talking about was women in science. And I would like to just throw that topic out and let you run with it, because it's something that we're interested in hearing about.
3: <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. So I've been around for a while and have seen just tremendous changes in the representation of women and also underrepresented minorities mm. in astronomy and it's been a joy uh, to to sort of grow as a professional as the field itself was changing i remember and in fact i have to say it still happens occasionally but in the past so many times when i would be the only woman in a group uh, the only woman in a meeting the only woman at a dinner table the only woman at a, in an observing group and it's so much better now it is Oh, it's just night and day. I, I do say it still happens occasionally, but much less. And I think that's because, first of all, there are many more women in the field. I just read some statistics from the American Institute of Physics. They have a statistics and physics center that sort of tracks representation of all kinds of things in the field. And something like 35 to 40 percent of PhD graduates in astronomy now are women. That's that's just wonderful it's such a change from the past and those women are being hired at about the correct rate about the same rate as men or maybe even a little more than men and um, in faculty positions at universities which means that the visibility of women for students is going up and that's really important as well because being able to see other women in these roles i think is a huge help for making everyone feel more welcome in the field and and we're just beginning to make progress on attracting people of color into the field and having an increase in representation in people of color in the academic ranks and in the research ranks. But I see progress. I see it every day. And I know that we're going to be making a lot of progress in the next in the next few years
1: and what are some important drivers of the of that progress i think that's one of the things that really baffles us especially three white men like us is what makes that change happen and how can we contribute to it
3: i think there are a variety of things that are have been in place for a while now we all recognize the the unfairness of the systemic racism that makes it difficult for for example african americans or native americans Hispanics to get into a field like astronomy. It takes a certain economic freedom to be able to pursue something that doesn't sound like a place where you might be able to have a career or where you might not feel that you have much of a future. And so we've all worked, I think, really hard over the last decade or more to try to reach out to provide more welcoming environments to Open minds to the possibilities of, of a career in astronomy or or to any other science. That means, I think, being more visible, being more focused in our own outreach efforts to reach into communities where we historically have not been. But you know, Hubble Hubble has made that a lot easier than it used to be. Those pictures that Hubble produces mm. are so stunning and so beautiful that they appeal to everyone. I think the hardest piece, at least the hardest piece I've encountered really is the economic issue, Mm -hmm. that parents of young people don't see research in science, and particularly something as esoteric as astronomy, as a viable future career path for kids who might be actually interested in science. I think kids get interested in science often through astronomy, through dinosaurs and through astronomy. (laughs) Um, And yet it doesn't seem like a viable career path. And so I think making that path seem more viable to parents and to students and to teachers is an important step that we, we have been working on. And I think uh, we need to work harder on in the future to make that clearer and more, more realistic for students. And that, I think, will make a big difference.
1: And, and I think that makes a lot of sense because um, people from more privileged um, groups are more willing to take a risk on a career that is you know less fiscally viable as far as paychecks go than people from underrepresented groups who, you know, are pushed to take fewer risks. So that that rings yeah. true just to my just to my common sense.
3: We've we've all heard uh, in the last few months of the enormous economic disparities mm-hmm. in this country. That the average net wealth in a black household compared to a white household. The difference is embarrassing and shameful. And to the extent we can assist to reduce that gap. I think we can also see more people of color feeling comfortable coming into the sciences. I have to say, though, that when we have prospective students visiting our campus um, who want to major in astronomy, the question I most often get from their parents is, but can my child make a living doing this? This sounds crazy. I really want my, my son or daughter to go into the business school because I know they can make a living in the business school. And it takes some reassurance and some examples to convince parents that they actually, their, their child can, um, in fact, make a living, have a wonderful life, do exciting and interesting things by going into science research. And it's just not obvious yet to many parents. And that's even in a white household, right? Hmm. In a black household, it's much, much more difficult. So
1: we, we've talked a little bit about career paths, and that's a good thing because we get a lot of questions about how to pick a career path uh, if, you know, from young students who are interested in working in space. Um, so I was hoping we could hear a little bit about what got you to where you are now and how you would, uh, and it sounds like you have lots of experience doing this, but how you would advise new students who are trying to decide on what field to go into.
3: Let's go back to that question about economic opportunity. So my advice, based on my own history, is do what you love. I love what I do every single day. I love the research I do. I love working with students. I love interacting with the smart people I interact with every single day. Um, I love the environment in which I work. I'm one of those lucky people who get to spend my life doing stuff I love to do. And that's, that's a product of economic opportunity. So it's a little bit unfair of me, I think, to to put that at the top of the list, because not everybody has that opportunity but I think it's also really, really important to love what you do. I know many people have a job. They might look at my job and say, gosh, she works all the time. She never takes a vacation. She, uh, she's just a workaholic, where they are able to go home at night and put their work aside and enjoy hobbies that they love and interactions with the people around them in ways that maybe I have missed out on. But I love what I do every single minute all the time. I work at home because I love what I do. And I, I think I'm super lucky that way. So I would recommend if for everyone who has that opportunity, follow your heart, do what you love, find what you enjoy doing and create a path that lets you do that. I think in today's opportunities, even students from who are, are at the lower, lower part of the economic ladder can make those opportunities happen for them. It may take a lot of hard work, but if they want something they love to do, they should really focus and try to do that. Um, for me, it's been a wonderful life. I just am excited every day coming to work because hmm. of the things I get to do, the, the people I get to work with, and the opportunities that it provides. Loving what you do. I, I think you guys probably are the same. You love what you're doing, and that makes all the difference. All right. Well, great. It's
1: it's time to start wrapping up here. We have two traditional final questions. The penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet?
3: So the best place to find me is on my department webpage it's www.astro.indiana.edu and just look at faculty and you'll find me there Um, I try to I try to put as much information that's helpful to the to the public as I can on that site so and invite everyone to take a look
0: and then for the final the ultimate question if you could bring one object with you into space what would that be
3: (laughs) one (laughs) object into space oh gosh so how long am I going up for?
1: Um, so so we're usually thinking, you know, this is a tourist flight either to a commercial space station or to the ISS. Um, so, you know, I, I would think a, a, a week maybe. If you'd prefer, we can change the scenario and put you on a far <laughs> side observatory.
3: Well, I have to say, I would never part with my laptop. I think hmm. that would happen. That I, would <laughs> <start with> the- <laughs> I can't imagine going up without my laptop. Um But what I really would want to take would be something I would bring up with me that I could give to someone else that Mm -hmm. had been to space. Mm -hmm. And so I might take, I think I would probably pick a book, and I would Mm -hmm. pick a book that was meaningful to me, something that I think had been part of my life for a long time. So I might pick one of those books I read as a child, one of those wonderful books about astronomy. Um, It's way out of date now, but it was so important in my own youth in understanding still why I love astronomy so much, I would take that with me. And then I would bring it back and give it to one of my students to remember how important our joy in what we do is.
1: This has been just a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for carving the time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us about telescopes.
3: Oh, happy to do it. I love to talk about that, that wind telescope.
0: So let's move on to this week in Spaceflight History, and we have a bunch of winners, or you know, a good handful here. Uh, we have we have Stigarfield, Ben Hallard, Law Loving, Deskin Miller, Lucas Moore, and Harbor City Brewing. So a lot of people there. Yeah, the clue that you came up with, Dennis, was uh, you are now free to move about the cabin, and. I honestly didn't know what that's about but you know something about getting out of your seat in the cabin of some spacecraft or capsule whatever that was my uh-huh. best guess so let's see if I was right Yeah you
2: you you will see all right <laughs> And so the event was on the 11th of August 1962 it was the launch of Vostok 3 Uh of course though so if you're familiar with that uh mission then of course i'll be talking quite a bit about Vostok 4 as well so uh to give a little background earlier uh that year back in February uh there have been four crewed missions at this point right the first two uh Vostoks as well as uh Uh, Mercury's uh, three and four with only, you know, with those four missions though, right? These were all solo. And so there was now an incentive, uh, among the kind of Soviet space program to launch a multiple, uh, spacecraft mission. And so the higher ups endorsed it and they, uh, you know, I eventually identified, uh, uh, two cosmonauts, uh, Andrian Nikolaev and Pavel Popovich, uh, as the crew. And so they would be flying in separate spacecraft that, you know, ultimately would be, you know, Vostok 3 and Vostok 4. And so at this point, a lot of this is documented in uh, the journals of um, different people, but uh, in particular, one of the uh, Soviet generals, uh, Kamenin. Uh, yeah, Kamenin. So in uh, one of uh, General uh, you know, Nikolai Kamenin's uh, journal entries, he was thinking about how, you know, eight to nine months between, you know, Vostok 2 and Vostok 3 would be reasonable, but given, you know, the most optimistic constraints, they could do it in a month. And sure enough, he got a call that they wanted to do these next launches in 30 days. And so the idea was that Vostok 3 would launch in March and uh, I guess Vostok 4 shortly thereafter. And then uh, the first uh, woman cosmonaut launch Uh, would be in August. But of course, that ended up uh, slipping, all of these slipped. And so, uh, uh, in particular, the first uh, Zenit uh, space satellite, uh, or sorry, reconnaissance satellite from Soviet Union, uh, which was named uh, Cosmos 4, uh, they needed to, they really wanted to prepare and prioritize that i suppose and so that kind of uh ended up uh, leading to the sort of series of slips for these uh, vostok three and four uh, missions and so um that one though successfully launched in april on a vostok k rocket and uh to keep in mind right that this is uh they used similar uh you know launch vehicles that were called vostoks with different kind of subsets of the names and then uh you know a zenit 2 the, the the reconnaissance satellite was essentially a Vostok but just modified to have cameras in it right and so these are the classic kind of ball looking re-entry vehicles uh, with the you know uh, equipment and uh, retro rockets kind of sitting at the uh, other end and so um, that was good it was a nice successful launch and then uh, the next Zenit however uh, later ended up crashing 300 meters from the launch pad on a different variant of a Vostok one that was designed specifically for the Zenits and uh, this was after a booster fell off while it was still on the pad. Which, um, I don't know if anyone was hurt. So, if anyone was hurt, that wouldn't be comedic. But uh, I remember, Ben, when we talked about the uh, Mercury 1 as far as uh, comedic space time failures, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that being another segment you wanted to get going. Uh, So long as no one got hurt from this one, I just feel like having a booster suddenly flopping off and then boom, that would Mm -hmm. be, that could potentially have been comedic. But. Of course, there's no footage sure. of that that we have. And so um, all the while, you know, ultimately it gets slipped back to August, like I said, right, August 11th. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of controversy over how long the mission would be, whether it be one day, which was something that uh, General Kaminin uh, supported. Uh, he wanted it to be a v- gradual increase in the length of these missions while Korolov and essentially everyone else uh, were more interested in three days. And so to kind of maybe soften things up, the spacecraft was ultimately given seven to 10 days of life support Uh to maybe make it clear that, you know, in three days, they hopefully, you know, that would be more than enough to sustain a human. And so, uh, months come by, months go by, uh, there was another successful Zenit launch Cosmos seven. So that kind of returned some confidence in the launch, in the launch vehicle. And, uh, Uh, spacecraft were kind of uh, all set up and prepped and ready to go. Um, These were Vostok 3KAs at this point. Uh, I don't know uh, the particular uh, version of the Vostok spacecraft. And so uh, then along came August 11th uh, when the Vostok 3 launched. And then uh, within 24 hours, uh, you know, just shy of 24 hours, uh, Vostok 4 flew uh, from the same pad, actually, which is, pretty remarkable. Vostok 3 had Nikolaev, Vostok 4 had uh, Popovich. And so Nikolaev, while he was up there, oriented his spacecraft to try to see Vostok 4's launch from you know, orbit, uh, but admitted uh, you know during the debriefing on the ground that he wasn't able to see anything. And so the clue comes in, uh, where this was the first time uh Nikolaev and then also uh, Popovich got up and moved about in the cabin, right? Which is to say a little kind of ball capsule. Mm-hmm. And so Nikolaev on his first day uh, was the first person to get up and do this. Um Gagarin and Titov just uh they did not plan for that, right? This was, you know, you know, very early, you know, human spaceflight, and so there was worries about physiological effects on you know everyone and so that just wasn't part of their mission profiles and uh glenn and grissom probably wouldn't have been able to get up and move about even if they wanted to with how unbelievably cramped the mercury mm-hmm. capsules were and so this was you know the first time getting up and moving about in uh you know a low uh, zero g environment uh some cosmonauts had trained for this uh earlier you know uh in a uh, tupolev 104 uh spacecraft doing reduced gravity uh you know uh, flights and then trying to get out of a, uh, you know, a harness. And, um, of course, right, you've got these two spacecraft, uh, launched within a day of each other. And they also did the first, uh, craft, spacecraft to spacecraft communications. Because of the amazing job that the rockets did, um, Their trajectories were basically bang on and they came within 6.5 kilometers or four miles of each other at their closest approach, which, of course, led the Americans to thinking, oh, my goodness, they've mastered <laughs> orbital maneuvering and rendezvous and are able to, you know, uh, do that, which was something that, you know. The Vostok's couldn't do that, but the Mercury's couldn't, right? Mercury's could change your attitude all you wanted, but you, once you were in your orbit, you know, you could fire your retros to get out of that, but that's essentially it. And of course, you know, as far as the space race and Cold War goes, you know, it didn't make sense for the Soviets to admit otherwise, you know what I mean? Just kind of, you know, pat yourself on the back for... What a good job you did and let people think uh, that, yeah, you must have already gotten uh, maneuvering figured out. You know, there was other things going on in the missions, of course. But uh, ultimately, Vostok 3 came back uh, on its uh, 65th orbit, which is just shy, a few hours shy of four days in space. And uh, Vostok 4, after only 49 orbits, right? Remember, it launched a day later. And uh, the key issue there was that uh, Popovich had noted that the cabin temperature was declining. At one point also, he had radioed in uh, Groza which is uh, Russian for thunderstorm, which uh, could be code uh, for severe space sickness. And so with those two, they thought to bring them back sooner rather than later. There's also some talk uh, uh, having to deal with uh, uh, high winds on the steppe at that time, right? Because these are land landings. Um, But Popovich uh, radioed in later, actually, that he felt fine and he just saw a Groza or Thunderstorm was commenting about it not that he had severe space mm-hmm. sickness but uh yeah so ultimately they both came back down and landed within 6 minutes of each other so as far as just like trajectories go uh this this was a really i I was surprised at mm-hmm. how impressive this pair of missions were and you know kind of the overall mission of getting the two because when you think of Vostok 3 and 4 I mean I with my knowledge I, I always just thought of okay it's the first time they chatted with each other you know what I mean but like not only uh them coming so close but also landing uh, uh within six minutes of each other was pretty pretty darn
1: impressive and so that is this week in space flight history
0: awesome this week in spaceflight history and I and I guess now we're going to go back to Ben so what is our clue yes. for next week
1: I, I reeked I reclaim the This Week in Spaceflight History hat. (laughs) And, uh, so your clue is for
0: next week in 2003. It's a flame retardant spacecraft. All right, so a flame retardant spacecraft, and that's next week in 2003. All right, well, if anyone out there thinks they know it, that is in reference to give us a tweet with the hashtag This Week SF and good luck.
1: Good luck, everybody. All right, and we don't have any upcoming spaceflight events for you this week.
0: Nothing. All right, skipping to the end, let's do it with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jaggies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record
2: live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 nut Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show, as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter
2: or Reddit for links. We're orbital podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: Alright, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until Until then, later.
2: Goodbye, everybody. See ya.